Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mick Enslecht. How are you, Mickey? I'm pretty good. Uh, it's finally fucking summer. It is finally here. It's like it's it's well into June, and we have finally received our first day of summer. And I know I sound pissed off, but I'm actually happy that it's finally here. Yeah, it's a weird emotional mix. It's like elation that it's finally beautiful and resentment that it's taken so fucking long. Yeah, it's right. It's you know we're owed as if we're owed you know good weather uh, because we expect it every year uh, around this time. I feel like I've paid for it since you know December. So yeah, yeah, I'm owed. Yes, I'm not sure who owes you, but some entity. Me? Do I owe you? <laughs> yeah, you do. Canada, God, I don't know. <laughs> That's right. So uh, Yoel, uh, I hear that you have good news. Uh, I do. Um, I got the official notification this morning that they have given me tenure here, which means that I am now even more free to say crazy shit on this podcast and I will be somewhat harder to fire. Well, that is amazing news. Congratulations. That's, uh, you know, a, a huge relief, I imagine. Thank you. <laughs> it was, yeah, because I'm like totally unqualified. So I was like, surely somebody will figure this out and not give me tenure. But, you know, evidently mistakes were made. Well, I mean, so I say relief because I feel for many of us, it's like, you know, happiness isn't exactly right because, yes, you're excited. You, you know, you, you want this thing, but it's more like, you know, this bad thing isn't going to happen. It's not that this good thing is happening. It's a bad thing is not going to happen. Right. Uh, the way I put it was I'm happy that I'm not going to be fired. Um, and it, it is a bit of a strange feeling, actually, to have worked towards this for so long. Right. So like depending on where you start counting, like I started graduate school in 2003. So that would be like more than 15 years that I've been working towards the school. And now it's happened. And it's like, that's nice. Right. And it's kind of like uh, you've, you, you, you've worked all this time and uh, what's next? This is why. So I read this thing in the Chronicle of Higher Ed that said of all the uh, academic ranks, the associate professors are the most depressed. So they have this like existential crisis. Yeah, right. They're working so hard. There's, you know, they have this, kind of, this carrot motivating them for so many years. They finally get the carrot and you're like, it's just a carrot. You're like the dog that caught the car and you're like, now what? Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of reminds me of that, you know, that, that, that movie with uh, Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt. Uh, um, is this it? Um, is, that, is that what the movie's called? Am I messing it up? <laughs> <laughs> You're totally fucking it up. As good as it gets. As good as it movie. gets. Totally messed that one up. Yeah. But um, actually, uh, uh, one of our uh, favorite guests, uh, Liz Page Gould, kind of talked to me about this. And, it's, you know, this kind of this feeling of like you achieve this this thing you've worked your entire life for or, you know, you're, you're, you're finally in the rhythm. You've got what you, you want to get in your life. And you're like, OK, so this is it. Like the rest of my life is this. Um, and that's kind of, yeah, that is a strange feeling. I think, you know, our entire lives were kind of striving, um, right away. Once we enter school, um, striving, you know, for, for, for the next, you know, uh, stage of our life to another. Um, and then once you reach a certain age, like those, those stages end more like, you know, there are fewer of them at the very least. Yeah, that's right. So whatever like coming existential anxiety is going to crush me, I'm just going to stave it off with beer. All right, we should uh, maybe mention. Yeah, let's let's talk beer. about what we're drinking. Yeah, so um, so you picked. I picked a Miller High Life, which is I think the second time that we've had Miller High Life 
uh, on the show. And actually, you know, I was not intending to buy this beer. Um, I went in search of the uh, Bucca beer, which we were promised by our provincial premier, uh, Doug Ford. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Canadian politics, he's sort of a right wing uh, populist. You might think of him as like, you know, the Canadian Donald Trump. So he's he's nicer. Certainly uh, he's uh, less xenophobic, but he is kind of like he makes a lot of promises. He like talks a lot of shit. He like blusters a lot. W- would you say that's fair? Yeah, I would call him, you know, uh, a Donald Trump light. Uh, so yeah, he's got some. He's certainly a populist, and you know, he's he, he, he's talking about working for the people. Um, meanwhile, he's, he's you know he's instituting all these cuts uh, to to public service, to, to, to teachers, you know, uh, cutting the number of teachers. So you know, he says he's for the people, yet he's doing things that are not really populist. Um, so he's somewhat unpopular. Right. And he also does his like culture war stuff where it's like, you know, distract people from the stuff over here by being like, oh, sex ed curricula, whatever. Anyway, the point is, the point is that Doug Ford, during his campaign, promised the people of Ontario that he would bring back beer for a dollar. And like so many promises that populists make, it was false because I looked everywhere and there is no dollar beer to be had. So I I Googled a bit and it turns out that the three manufacturers who said they were going to make dollar beer, they all stopped. I guess you like can't make money that way. And then the closest thing to dollar beer was no name brand beer, which is like a thing, like a Canadian brand. It's like this yellow, like black on yellow uh, packaging. Uh, So so it's like the Loblaws store brand. And so no name beer was supposed to be a dollar fifty. Okay. So I was like, all right, that's still 50% more than I was promised by Doug Ford. Thank you very much. But I'm going to go to the LCBO and I'm going to buy the no-name beer. And I even looked up beforehand to make sure on their on their website that they would have it. But then they didn't. It wasn't anywhere. So instead, I had to buy this Miller High Life, which was like $11.50 for a six-pack. So that's nearly $2. Oh, my <laughs> God. I know. It is an outrage. That That is an outrage. Yeah. Um, $2 for that? Well, <laughs> although, yeah. Although, to put it in, in, into perspective, I, I spent... This past week, uh, $15 on one bottle of beer, um, uh, which I'm saving for, for, for a good occasion. So, which is way too expensive. Beer should, should, should not cost more than five bucks. Yeah, that's insane. Are we going to drink that thing on air or? Um, well, you know, I will see. I, I'm going to drink it on air. I'm not trying to share it with you. <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> You know, this just proves uh, Doug Ford's point that public servants are overpaid. (laughs) Look at these university professors and their $15 bottles of beer. It's bullshit. Yeah, it it is bullshit. I just bought it for the, the, I was curious about it. Earlier this week, uh, I got a notice from my website host that uh, one of my articles was taken down uh, upon the request of... uh, of someone, and either a journal or uh, a, a, an agent for the journal, specifically, well, so for APA, for the American Psychological Association, um, uh, they flagged one of my articles, which was published uh, just last year in 2018, from the Journal of Experimental Psychology General. And um, the issue here is that I post all my journal articles, all the typeset, journal-formatted journal articles on my website. And technically, that is illegal. So we are allowed as academics to post our own work, pre-printed copies of our work, so kind of the um, manuscript pages. Uh, But we're not allowed to actually post the journal-edited pages. Uh, That is uh, illegal because the journals themselves hold the copyright. But while this is true, nearly every academic I know who's got a website hosts 
uh, post their uh, journal edited copies on their website. Not everybody, but but nearly everyone I know. Um, and technically, again, this is illegal, but we do it because I, I think that we view academics, we view ourselves as committing a service to the journals by, you know, from in many places working for them as editors. So I worked for, for example, for that very journal, Journal of Experimental Psychology General. I reviewed for them many, many times for free. I reviewed for many APA journals and without any remuneration. Moreover, as a taxpayer, um, I pay for publicly funded universities to subscribe to APA journals. So I actually indirectly pay for these journals through my tax dollars. And this is, these are like you know, tens of thousands of dollars a year for these journal subscriptions. So I don't like the, 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 the fact, you know, the fact that the journals hold the copyright. And as a result, I'm like, well, I work for this. It's my article. I'm going to post it. I don't give a shit, you know, whether it's illegal or not. And journals generally are okay with this. They don't look too harshly on this. And they, I've actually rarely heard of journals requesting for articles to be taken down from, you know, academics' websites. I heard about it a couple of years ago. APA was going around uh, telling people to take down their articles, but then they uh, they stopped that policy because they saw how short-sighted it, it was. Um, and I thought that was it. That was in 2017. But then it happened to me just this week. It also happened to someone else, um, um, also from a Canadian university, a psychologist as well. So I, I know of at least two cases where this has happened. Um, so yeah, that happened, and I kind of complained on Twitter, and people were like, you know, screw them, you should bang on the table and let APA know that we, we, we won't stand for this, and we're not going to review, I'll, you know, maybe boycott them as a journal, which you know, I can do. There might be some costs, of course, to my students who want to publish there, but for me, I, uh, it doesn't bother me. Um, and anyway, so I contested it to, uh, with, with my website host, saying, uh, this is incorrect, even though that's not true. It is a copyright infringement. But I was like, no, this is incorrect. This is done, you know, there's some mistake here and uh, I, I want to fight this. And they responded with a form letter saying, okay, sure, no problem. Um, here's what you have to do. Give us your name, number, blah, blah, blah. Um, you have to give us an, your address uh, or if not an address, you don't have to, you know, it's the, the address of a court in, in, New, York, in New York State. Um, and then I had to sign the following statement. I swear under penalty of perjury, that I have a good faith belief that the material was removed or disabled as a result of a mistake or misidentification of the material to be removed or disabled. All right, and that is, um, that's not true. Um, I do know that that copyright material is not mine, that I'm not legally allowed to do it. Um, so I would not want to sign that. Um, I think there's some wiggle room there. So, there, you know, in there, there's a mistake. I think it wasn't a mistake on my part. I think it was a mistake on APA's part to enforce their own rule. Um, and maybe they don't really want to do it. Um, so part of me is like, maybe I should just sign this and see. Uh, I'm, the most likely scenario is nothing will happen. Um, but what if something does happen? What if uh, APA or their agent decides to sue me? Um, would I, you know... What, would that be good optics for them? Would I want to go for the, you know, go through the hassle of doing that? Um, I'm not really sure. So I'm not really sure what to do at, at this point. And what do you advise? Well, you could uh, sign up for a second web hosting account with some sketchy Russian web host. Just post all your files there, and then you know, good luck uh, get, getting those taken down. APA fuckers. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm just fucking pissed, man. I'm pissed that they're spending the organization's money pursuing this bullshit like they don't have like things to do this is 
I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy that they're going around sending academics takedown letters for posting their own papers. And I understand legally they have a right to do it. That doesn't mean it's a good idea. It doesn't mean it's morally justified. It doesn't mean that should be doing it. It's just like this is the same fucking organization that like gave psychologists the go ahead to torture prisoners at Gitmo. And as far as I'm concerned, this is exactly the same <laughs> morally. <laughs> just as bad. Maybe right. worse. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I take your larger point. I mean, APA morally, morally is is not like an upstanding, you know, moral citizen. The torture is a clear, clear case. They've also had some, I think, some recent kind of sketchy policy policies that, you know, I, I disagree with or just became, you know, delving into politics a bit too much. So they had a policy recently on how to treat uh, men and masculinity, which we never talked about. But, you know, I think there's some there's something good with that policy, but there's also some, something misguided about it. Um, so yeah, it's not an organization I particularly like, to be honest. So one could say we're the idiots for working for them for free, for submitting our papers there, et cetera, right? Like if you don't like APA, then don't submit to JPG. Certainly like don't work for them as an editor, don't review for them. I think that rules out JPSP too, unfortunately. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So not ideal. Right. So, I mean, so one thing, I, I, one other thing that someone else floated was like, once you get like a, you know, kind of a, a crowdsource, a, a bunch of names saying, hey, if you continue to harass individual scientists, we will stop working for you. I mean, we'll still submit our papers there, maybe, but we're not going to edit for you. We're not going to review for you. And if I can get like a hundred or plus names, that might have some force. Yeah, that's great. I'll sign on to that. Yeah, so I might maybe perhaps I'll do that. So, listeners, if you want to join Mickey's crusade, uh, email <laughs> fourbeerspot at gmail dot com. Yes, that's right. And uh, and also, if I do get sued, uh, we'll be taking donations uh, for my legal fund. All right. Well, um, are we ready for more beers? How are you doing on the uh, Le Champagne de Beers? Yeah, uh, in your you know, beautiful uh, French. Thank uh, you. I've been practicing <laughs> as a Canadian now. Yeah. I, I, I can tell. Yeah. I can tell. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's possible. It's you know the weather. The weather makes me happy. It's so a, even this, it's is a okay. nice. It's a nice light. You know, whatever this is. Yeah, you can drink a lot of it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Well, bottoms up. Cheers. Cheers. part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So the easiest way is probably on Twitter where we're at four beers pod. So you can at mention us, you can DM us. If you're more an email sort of person, you can reach us at fourbeerspod at gmail.com. That email will go to both of us. Our website is always is fourbeers.fireside.fm where you can find all of your our episodes and a contact form as well. Finally, if you've been enjoying the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people discover us. 
Thank you very much. And we are back to, uh, I guess, what we're drinking, which is still the same thing. The champagne of beers. The champagne of beers. It's, you know what? You talk a lot of shit with your like beer snobbery, but it's a good beer. You just um, um, said that on air. I did. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good beer. It's a passable beer. It's a beer that you can drink in the summer. A good beer, please, don't uh, degrade the word good. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, the just general lowering of standards, right? Um, and one other yeah. thing, I want to just add one thing to your kind of promo uh, plug in there. Um we haven't received an actual review in a while, and and like I feel that we've changed many people's lives, and we haven't for the worst though. <laughs> Maybe we have not heard enough from you know, people telling us how we've changed their lives. So um, we need this, people. So give us a review. Uh, we'd love we'd love to hear from you. Right. I started listening to the show. My girlfriend left me. My dog ran off. <laughs> I wrecked my car. No more. Like you've changed my life. Thank you very much. Two psychologists, four beers, stuff like that. I have a drinking problem. <laughs> Can right. you please send us weed? Right, 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 right. All right, so we have uh, a couple of things we want to accomplish today, right? So what, what is our main, uh, main uh, yeah, order so of business today? Our main order of business was actually suggested by a listener on Twitter, uh, goes by the name of Childish Critic. Uh, whoever you are, uh, thanks for the topic suggestion, um, which was to talk about the Democratic primary field and to to look and see if there's anything that the research in uh, social psych or judgment decision making can tell us about um, how people may be thinking about this very large, very diverse field of candidates. So we have uh, put together, uh, mainly for Mickey's benefit here, a list of the Democratic primary field for 2020, which is an extensive one. Uh, so the New York Times lists 23 candidates that they consider to be like worth knowing about. Um, of those, uh, 20 have qualified for the primary debates. We can talk about the standards by which one qualifies for the Democratic primary debates in a minute. Uh, but first, Mickey, what do you think? How many of these names uh, look familiar to you? Oh, man. So uh, well, everyone knows I'm Canadian, so I, I don't really pay attention that much to U.S. politics. At least I try to actively. I try to actively not pay attention because I find it so... Really? You're, you're working to avoid knowing anything about U.S. politics? I mean, it's, you know, it's impossible to not, to not know anything. Because of our cultural hegemony. Yes, yeah. that's right. Um, and because, you know, Canada, we are just so influenced by the U.S. We are right here. Um, but, uh, so, but I find it so sickening, U.S. politics. I really do. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I, I follow a little bit. And, okay, how many names do I know? I'm just going to kind of give you names that I know. Yeah. Um, okay, Joe Biden I know. Okay, that's one. Um Cory Booker, I know, but I think I thought he was someone else. Okay, I'll give you half. So one and a half. <laughs> okay, I've heard about May, uh, Mayor Pete. Okay, uh, okay, two and a half. I'm going to try to pronounce his last name. Pete Buttigieg. Buttigieg. Buttigieg? Buttigieg. All right, not bad. Not bad. Not bad. Um, I've heard of Kamala Harris. Uh-huh. Uh, I've heard of Beto O'Rourke, Bernie Sanders, of course. Beto. Uh, Beto. Uh-huh. All right. Sorry. Uh-huh. Uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, of course. Uh, I've heard of Andrew Yang. Okay. Um, because I enjoyed listening to him on a podcast uh, where he talked about universal basic, basic income. But I understand he's got no chance of winning. Um, I've heard of uh, Kristen Gillibrand. Mm -hmm. um, the future is female. The future is intersectional. Yep. Um, uh, who else? Uh, I think... 
That's it. Howard Schultz, wasn't he? No, he's about not on he... this list. Okay. Yeah, but he he was he's not on the New York Times list because he hasn't declared. So I, I yeah, see. You don't get any credit. Well, I'll give you half a point for Schultz. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I hear Donald Trump is going to run. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. Wrong party. I know. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So I know what was it? Was that how many? That was that was ten. That was, oh my god! That was t- so there's like fifty percent, which in Canada is a passing grade. So, <laughs> so you just barely squeak by with a uh, with a D. It's funny that you mention you know uh, being a passing grade in Canada because I th- I feel for this segment that I'm going to be like a barely passing co-host. I'm just going to be like I don't know what you're talking about, uh, and I'm just kind of you're just you're just gibber gibber. Yeah, <laughs> you're doing a great job. I mean, if you quiz me about Canadian politics, uh, yeah, I don't know how. Well, I would do so. I I shouldn't get too high and mighty. That that is true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So uh, the question we were asked was, um, given that there's this like uncommonly large field, given that the uh, debates are going to be twenty people, it looks like uh, split across two days, so ten people per day. Um, what can we say about? how the psychology of how we choose among options might influence people's reactions to this like large field of candidates. That's my paraphrase of the question. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I think so. And I, I, maybe to add a little bit of you know context, um, I think Childish Critic, who, by the way, has got crazy photos, avatar. Uh, yeah, uh, some uh, weird like dolphin lady there. Yeah, um, pretty strange. That's not his avatar. That's just like in the media section. Right. Yeah. I kind of like that, even the handle, Childish Critic. I don't know. Well, we'll post a link. Yeah. Um, I, so the, the added context was, um, I think he or she, they. Um, they were trying to make the point that maybe Donald Trump got through the Republican, you know, primaries because there were also it was such, also such a massive field, and maybe there was um, something about the, about the dynamics of there being so many candidates, and maybe like um, there being kind of top tier candidates and second tier candidates that somehow just the dynamics of those numbers, you know, allow for you know someone who's such a poor candidate like Donald Trump to to, to kind of sweep through there. Um, he was thought, and he wondered would there be similar dynamics playing out where maybe not the best candidate would, would get through the uh, the Democratic. Uh, yeah, was that the subtext? I, I, I mean, so. yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know how much I agree that Donald Trump was a bad candidate. I think he had his finger on the pulse of the Republican electorate in the way that like Jeb or Marco Rubio actually didn't. Um, so I'm not sure if, if that is in fact a premise of the question, I don't buy it. But yeah, we can talk about um, whether an analogy between the 2020 Democratic field and the 2016 Republican field uh, makes sense. So let's talk a bit about these debates, right? So there's going to be um, a, a series of debates. And, and to start with, they're going to be split um, such that we have 10 people per night and they're not going to do like the Republicans did in 2016. They're not going to do a varsity and a junior varsity tier. So they're going to take like some of the more top tier candidates, some of the candidates that are not polling as well, and they're going to sort of mix them across the two nights. It's not clear why they think that's the right way to do it, but that's that's what the DNC who who are in charge of the debate format. Um, that's what they've decided to do. And the bar that they've set to qualify um, is uh, you can have either uh, 1% support in at least three qualifying polls, and they list the pollsters that would uh, qualify you, 
or 65,000 unique donors, right? So it's, it's one of those two. And so based on those criteria, right now, 20 people are qualified. Um, if more than 20 people qualify, then some elimination criteria will kick in to keep the overall number to 20. Um, but that's a, that's a really big field. And it um, includes some people that you've probably uh, never heard of. Like, uh, do you have any idea who Eric Swalwell is, for example? No idea. Yeah, he'll be up on the debate stage. What about Marianne Williamson? No idea. Yeah, a best-selling author, evidently. Uh, Bill de Blasio, you've probably heard of him. Oh, I have heard about I've heard of him, for sure. Yeah. Yes, yes. I find his candidacy to be hilarious because he's so widely loathed. There was a story in the Times that said his own aides urged him not to run, and he was like, fuck it, I'm running. And evidently, he his approval, like disapproval um, gap is uh, worse even than Donald Trump's. Wow. Yes. Why, I mean, this is, this is the current mayor of New York. Current mayor of New and York. And why is he so loathed? Uh, it's not clear. He sort of seems like kind of a blowhard. He sort of seems self-aggrandizing. I think that the feeling is that he hasn't done a great job as mayor, although it's not clear what that's based on because he has achieved some of his priorities, universal pre-K, for example. Um, but yeah, people just hate him. It's it's kind of New York, I guess. They just kind of hate everybody. But but yeah, he, he's, uh, boy, I would not want to be Bill de Blasio. But, but he must have a lot of self-regard because against the advice of um, his advisors and knowing that people don't like him, he's still in. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I have one question for you before we get into the, the, the meat of, the, of this topic. Um, uh, so you had mentioned that there, uh, the DNC has uh, opted for a different um, format than uh, the Republican, uh, the RNC. Um, and in that, you know, there's not a tier one, tier two. There's kind of a mixing in both nights. And um, do you think that format helps or hurts uh, democracy but by, by that i meaning you know will the will the, the true people's choice or the the tr the, be the better candidates emerge more likely to emerge in that format or the rnc's format do you think yeah that's a that's a great question um i don't know i mean i guess it sort of depends how this is going to play out i i think the dnc was stung by these accusations that last time that they essentially like rigged the primary for for clinton um, and it showed her undue favoritism. And so now they're, they've kind of overreacted in the opposite direction. If we're going to be super egalitarian, we're going to include everybody, no matter how marginal a candidate you are. Um, we're going to mix it up so that the top tier versus the like lower tier candidates are on the same stage. I would, I, my personal preference would be to see the candidates who are like serious contenders debate each other without the noise of like, you know, Eric Swalwell or Tim Ryan or, um, you know, Andrew Yang in there, right? Like, is that really going to add these people obviously have no shot? So, I, I mean, I suppose you could say, well, they could be there to argue for a specific policy that's maybe being neglected in the mainstream. That's possible. There's always trade-offs. I would rather see the people who have a reasonable shot of being elected. But maybe one benefit of, of the DNC's uh, strategy is if it's, you know, tier one, tier two, well, then no, you know, tier, no one's going to make it from tier one, from tier two to tier one. They're just okay, immediately discounted um, versus this, this kind of mixed model. Um, what if someone shows up really, really well? What if Andrew Yang, you know, bests Bernie Sanders? What if, you know, it turns out, wow, he's a really well-rounded candidate. He's super well-informed on all these, on all these topics. Um, and maybe we should reconsider him as opposed to him just being stuck in tier two and, uh, like, okay, so we bested some other nobody and it's not going to really matter. 
Yeah, I mean, if it were a one-on-one kind of thing, I could see that. But this can be a stage of ten people, many of whom are like also these weird randos, right? So like any, any one person, <laughs> like how are they even going to distinguish themselves just in terms of like minutes that they have to speak? It just doesn't seem possible. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't be possible. Also, I want to just note that I, I, I love that you used randos there. It's one of my favorite new expressions, randos. <laughs> I'm glad you like. Sorry, sorry to Andrew Yang or whoever I was tarring with that brush. Steve Bullock, I think you were tarring uh, with that brush. Steve Bullock. Steve Bullock is at least governor of a well, a not very populous state, but of Montana. No. Jay Inslee, you were you were uh... Jay Inslee is governor of Washington, and he has a lot of interesting things to say about climate change. So, so yeah, I, I mean, now maybe I'm arguing your point. Maybe I want Jay Inslee on that stage to say climate change is a catastrophe and we have to do something. All about I it. want to know is who is going to legalize marijuana. I'm voting for that. <laughs> You're a single issue <laughs> voter. Were you telling me that Cory Booker is pro legalizing marijuana? I heard so. that, um, and I and I believe also a Beto O'Rourke is also pro. Okay. So uh, Elizabeth Warren, just get on the pro marijuana train, and uh, I cannot vote in the U.S., right. but you'll have my vote nonetheless. Right, right. You can't vote. You can't donate money to her, but you'll be on Twitter. You know, supporting <laughs> exactly. her. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I guess one um, important question to start with is like, if we look at the polling, like, is it is it clear that there's uh, a front runner or a sort of presumptive, I guess, favorite? Um, and it, in my opinion, I think it's pretty clear that there is. So Biden consistently is polling at around 30 percent. So in recent polls, regardless of the pollster, kind of averaging across those polls, he's he's in the um the 30 percent range. Uh, Sanders, uh, Bernie Sanders is a reliable second place at around 15 to 20 percent. So that's already quite a bit lower. Uh, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren um, are tied for third with, uh, yeah, you know, maybe about 10 percent of the vote each, uh, maybe a little less. Uh, Buttigieg and O'Rourke are uh, in fourth with between five and 10 percent. And then all of the rest are basically like low single digits. So kind of negligible impact so far. So it's really a field that looks like Biden, maybe Sanders, and then everybody else. Right. Well, I think I think uh, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren as well seem 10 percent. Not bad. And that can also change dramatically over the course of, uh, you know, this, this entire process. Right. So, like, obviously, one thing to keep in mind is, like, there's been zero debates so far. Right. Most of the voters are still getting to know who the candidates even are. Um you know, that said, that Biden's lead is substantial, right? right. That's not nothing. And, you know, I, I do feel a little bit burned by, in 2016, discounting Trump's lead, saying like, well, surely once the field consolidates, you know, like he's got a ceiling, he can't win with that percentage of support. And it, yeah, it turns out that the person who led throughout most of the primary is the person who ended up winning. Um, I think that's a pretty reasonable heuristic to follow right. if you want to predict the outcome. Um, let's maybe talk a, l- a tiny bit uh, about Biden a little bit, uh, and then let's get into like okay, like the, the format and, and kind of the, the, the psychology of, of, of choice making here. Right. Um, so uh, again, you know, kind of following this, you know, with just you know a little bit. Um, my sense is that despite him polling so well, um, 
that he is not liked by the kind of more uh, extreme end, uh, left end of the Democratic uh, wing, um, the Democratic Party, right? So um, he's seen by progressives, essentially. He's seen, uh, I guess he's got, some, you know, the, the, the whole him touching people, women, girls even, um, you know, on the shoulders, kind of creepy uncle way. Um, he's an old white guy, which, uh, of course, is, that, just that alone is, is enough to, to, to damn him in, in, in some people's eyes. Um, so, but he seems, if anything, to not give a shit about that stuff. Uh, so, so what do you make of, of, of kind of his, the, 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 the way progressives dislike him and his kind of handling of, of the... Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's sort of been a lesson in the, so far, relative unimportance of what progressive elites and uh, progressives on Twitter think. Right. Yeah, it's true. They don't like Biden. Um, Michelle Goldberg, who's sort of my barometer for like what uh, progressive media elites think, has been anti-Biden uh, from the the get go. I mean, not in a mean way, but in a, you know, yeah, too old, too white, seems a bit out of touch. We have affectionate memories of you from the Obama administration, but go away. Right. Um, but it turns out that, you know, the Democratic primary electorate is quite a bit more conservative than those progressive elites. And to those people. Um, I mean, first of all, it's just that Biden's a familiar face and he's associated with the Obama years, which are, you know, a good memory. Um, but then also that he's more moderate and that I think is appealing um, to a lot of more moderate uh, Democratic primary voters, many of whom incidentally are, are um, non-white. Right. So among the Democratic primary electorate, uh, white people are actually more liberal uh, than non-white people are, um, which accounts, I think, in part for uh, Biden's support among African-American primary voters, for example, which is um, surprisingly strong, given that there's qualified black people in the race. Right. So you'd think if they were just voting on the basis of identity, they would be looking to Kamala Harris or Cory Booker. Um, and that doesn't really seem to have been it doesn't seem to be the case so far. Right. Not to say that couldn't change. Uh, it took Obama a while to persuade uh, black primary voters as well. Uh, but so far, it seems that, you know, Biden's moderation and then possibly his association with the Obama presidency has uh, really helped him there. Yeah, I, I find that super interesting that, you know, the, the all the chatter we see on Twitter um, is really disconnected. Uh, from what, you know, mainstream uh, uh, voters actually care about. Because just looking again, you know, and I don't even follow that many, especially lately, I, I, I tried to follow very many, you know, political types on Twitter. Um, but, it, you know, just from my lens there, it would seem like there's no way Biden would have a chance and it would be someone in like um, an AOC mold uh, would be more well suited. Bernie Sanders um, would seem, uh, I'm surprised he's not, would seem, uh, I'm surprised. But nonetheless, uh, you know, it is what it is. And uh, I guess we'll see, we'll see how it shakes out. So let's, uh, let's move on to the, to the really the main topic here, which is um, what can the psychology of choice and of judgment, uh, how can, how can it help us understand um, this primary process? Right. Um, so I guess to me, the like most important, like overarching thing to keep in mind is that typically as choice difficulty goes up, so does the use of heuristics. Um, so heuristics are just mental shortcuts that we use to simplify decision problems. The harder the decision problem all else equal, the more likely we are to turn to our heuristic to help us solve it. Because 
thinking about it in a non-heuristic way is difficult, uh, effortful. Uh, we don't like that or um, we're not, we don't feel in the moment cognitively capable of doing it. So we turn to a mental shortcut to make the question kind of easier for us. Um, and there's quite a few uh, relevant heuristics here. And there's a, there's a few that I thought were particularly um, interesting in that uh, as I was going through this list of like thinking about, okay, what are the heuristics that might be relevant? Like a lot of them seem to me to push for Biden. Um, and that's not something that I went in expecting, but then when I kind of went through the list, it did seem that way that on balance, it seems like most of these are going to help Biden over the rest of the field. So what are some of these, uh, these heuristics? Well, so, um, so one uh, is the recognition heuristic um, and uh, the related uh, availability heuristic, which just have to do with um, when you hear about a set of options, which do you recognize or which feels familiar to you? Um, so the recognition heuristic strictly is um, if you have a choice between two objects, um, you recognize one um, and uh, don't recognize the other, then you infer that the recognized object is the right answer. So, for example, if I ask you about what of two German cities has the big, bigger uh population, um, Berlin or shit. Now I'm blanking, but like, imagine I come up, uh, Lübeck, right? You're like, Oh, I've heard of Berlin. I've never heard of the other one. You would go with Berlin. Right. And most of the time that would actually be the right answer, uh, in picking the city with the bigger population. So it's a, it's a very simple strategy that typically gives you the right answer. Now, is it strictly speaking going to be the case that, you know, when it comes to the democratic primary field, people will have heard of Biden, but no other candidate. No, probably not. Probably they've heard to some extent um, of some of the candidates. Well, Bernie Sanders, for Bernie sure. Bernie Sanders, for sure. Right. So I, I think maybe, you know, strictly the recognition heuristic doesn't quite apply, but something like availability where you're like, well, how much do I recall having heard about these candidates? How much do I do, do these feel familiar to me? And I'm going to go with the one that feels the most familiar. That doesn't make sense. And it makes sense of something kind of weird, which is if you ask uh, Biden supporters, what's your second choice? Uh, the majority say Bernie and vice versa for Bernie supporters, which seems crazy because in terms of policy, they're pretty much as far apart as you can be in the Democratic primary field. But if you're just saying, oh, I'll, I'll respond people that I'm familiar with, then it makes perfect sense, Right. They're kind of giving you the names that are the most well-known. Oh, that's, that, 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 that really is interesting. I also uh, find it interesting that um, you know, it comes down to effort and la mental laziness here. That, because it really is. I mean, even me preparing for you know, the little preparation that I did, um, the, you know, preparing for this podcast, you know, I, at one point I'm like, I just can't, I, I, I can't even read you know, five sentences about each candidate because there are just so many of them. So I just you know, ended up focusing on the ones who, you know, the names I recognized. Right, right. And, you know, I mean, most normal people don't have time to obsess about the Democratic primary field in the way that I do. Right. So they're going to not pay that much attention, maybe tune in for a debate or two. Think about like, well, what headlines have they seen or, you know, what cable news have they encountered that mentions these candidates and sort of make their decision that way. And this is also in the uh, book Identity Crisis. So this is kind of a well-known thing in in um, political science that uh, voters infer the quality of a candidate from the amount of media coverage. So just how much have I been hearing about this candidate in the media? That's something, a cue that they use to make their decision of who to support. Right. That, that, that makes lots of sense. Um, so, okay. So we've got, you know, familiarity, uh, you know, favoring uh, Biden, um, maybe Bernie, but I would also say Elizabeth Warren, 
Um, not to the same extent. Um, uh, because, uh, I mean, I, again, not paying lots of attention, but uh, I've heard her name a lot. Uh, she seemed to be really kind of sharp tongue and, and been able to match to some extent some of uh, Donald Trump's, you know, uh, you know, um, vitriol a little bit, or at least to push back a bit. She was, she was willing to, and many people weren't. So I recall her and remember her saying these things, and I became more interested and read a bit more about her. Right. I mean, that's kind of the game for candidates at this stage is to get the media to talk about you, uh, to get people to pay attention to you. And I, I think Warren in particular, I mean, just full disclosure, um, I love her. And like I, right now, she's the one I support. So just like to put my bias out there. But I do think that she's done a great job of capturing media attention, first of all, by being kind of more um, oppositional, by like really staking out this like um, oppositional place on the left. Um, and then also by just releasing a lot of policy proposals. Um, so she's done a ton of policy work already. And some of it really has started like moving the debate. Now, other people are talking about, for example, um, canceling tuition debt, higher education debt. Um, so that's like in a way that's that's substantive, obviously. Um, but it's also a media strategy. When she keeps putting stuff out there, the media kind of has to talk about it. And that means her name is in the news. And that means lower information voters are hearing about it. Right. So that does help her. Right. That, that makes lots of sense. Um, so maybe we'd say those are the one, those are the three that have gotten really the most attention. Obviously, you know, Biden, um, Sanders and Warren. Um, right. And that that is roughly the order that they're in in the polling. Right. So I would say that uh, overall, Kamala Harris is pulling a little bit uh, beneath Warren. Um, and she has notably also gotten some media attention, particularly um, in some of the congressional hearings. Uh, she was seen to have done well. They played clips of her. Uh, she has a background as a prosecutor, right? So she's going to ask good questions. Um, in uh, what was it, the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing, she's thought to have done well. Like all of that stuff, obviously, it boosts your profile. Why do people care about that? Because that's how voters find out about you. That's right. right. Um, okay, so what else do we have, uh, you know, other than availability? Right. Um, so the other thing that I thought was super relevant um, is this research on decision strategies. Um, this is a classic book by uh, Payne, Bettman, and Johnson um, that just said, kind of in the way that I said already, people switch strategies depending on features of the choice environment. So for example, how many cognitive resources do they have to devote to the problem? How many options are there? And so on. Um, and in particular, you can contrast what's called compensatory and non-compensatory strategies. So a compensatory strategy just means that people's levels on different attributes can trade off against each other. So imagine you're looking for an apartment. You might be like, this apartment is closer but it's to my work, but it's also more expensive and it gets less light, whereas this apartment is farther away, right? But it's cheaper and has bigger windows. And you might imagine making like an Excel where you're like, how much do I care about each of those things? Coming up with like a weighted sum score that tells you which apartment do I prefer. And so that's compensatory because the apartment apartment that's more expensive might have that bad attribute made up for by other good attributes, right? On the other hand, you could say uh, there's a class of strategies that are non-compensatory where you only care about one attribute and whatever is best on that attribute wins, right? So you might say, I want the apartment that's closest to my work regardless of anything else, right? Uh, that's called lexicographic um, in, uh, in, in the kind of language that uh, Payne, Bettman, and Johnson use. Um, so that's kind of a fundamental distinction between how you might make these kinds of decisions. And obviously, uh, lexicographic, or they just say lex, that's their abbreviation, um, requires less effort. 
right? You only have to evaluate things on one dimension. You rank them. If there's a tie, then you go to the second most important dimension. But if there's not, you're done, right? So it's, it imposes less of a burden on the chooser. Now, it seems to me that for many primary voters, they value one thing the most, and that's beating Trump, right? So in other words, electability. And Biden, rightly or wrongly, is perceived to be quite electable, right? He's held um, the vice presidency. He's seen as he's more moderate. Uh, he's a white dude. He's seen as being able to connect um, with voters that maybe Hillary Clinton is thought to have alienated, you know, the kind of like... By connecting, you mean like rubbing yeah, giving, shoulders. giving them uh, scalp massages, which they love. Right. You're you're working on the assembly line all day and your your scalp gets really sore. And then Joe Biden gives you a lovely scalp <laughs> massage. And then I'm all for and it. And then you vote Democratic. <laughs> That's the thinking. Right. So so if you're applying this like lexicographic strategy, you might say, well, actually, my policy uh, inclinations are more in line with like, let's say, Warden or Sanders, like actually maybe. Biden is a little bit too moderate for me. Now, that's kind of ignoring the fact that like most dem many Democratic primary voters are, in fact, quite moderate. But let's say I'm one of the more left ones. But I'm saying like, oh, I value electability. If I'm in the mode where I'm uh, making that decision in a non-compensatory way, so using a lexicographic strategy, I would say I'm just going to pick the person who's most electable. Screw all the other stuff. Right. And that definitely helps Biden. Now, I, I think that the uh, percentage of primary voters who prioritize electability over policy fit is actually pretty substantial. Um, so as you were describing, so I, this is brand new research to me. I, I'm not familiar with it. Um, as you were describing it, I, I was trying to figure out which is the optimal strategy. It seems to me the, the ones where you have the spreadsheet and you know weight each one based on your own kind of internal criteria that would seem to be the most rational or the best way to decide um, versus the lex, lex uh, you know, uh, strategy, which is like, you know, whatever, what's my number one priority and whoever wins on that, that's why I choose. But what does the research say about that? So people who are, you know, uh, you know, one versus the other, uh, you know, is it the case that Lex actually look okay? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, which is the right strategy depends on lots of things, including, you know, high, how high are the stakes? Um, what are your cognitive resources in the moment? So it's tough to say that one is, quote unquote, better than the other. But I think one takeaway that's sort of surprising is that these kind of simple strategies do surprisingly well compared to like weighted additive would be sort of the gold standard. Right. So a, a lot of the time, these more simple heuristic strategies actually uh, give you the right answer. And it means you have to do a lot less work. OK, by, I, I, I totally buy that. Um, but if the right answer is which toaster should I buy or which, you know, car should I buy? You're like, all right, you know, this or that. OK, whatever. Um, but this seems more consequential. Um, so one would hope that most voters are not simply you know, like me, the one issue voter, whoever supports weed is who I vote for. Well, I don't know. Um, I, I guess consequential. I mean, any individual's vote doesn't matter. Right. So we're all just kind of like indulging ourselves anyway. Um, and I, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. Like that's uh, there's a lot of assumptions there. I, I don't know. It's arguably rational um, for an individual voter to say, like, 
I'm going to care about this, but not invest too much effort in it. Right. Like, I mean, I care to the extent that I show up to vote and know like a minimum amount, minimal, sorry, amount about the candidates. Uh, but I'm not going to invest hours and hours of my life in like exhaustive research on details. But isn't that how voters end up voting against their best interests? Because they have some simple heuristic or one category. Um, for example, they, are they a Republican or Democrat? That would be the easiest, you know, uh, uh, category in the, the simplest lex. Um, but oftentimes, uh, uh, the people who vote a certain way are actually voting against what they actually need or want. But because of this one issue, they're blinded by that one issue. And that could be, you know, uh, I'm loyal to a party. It could be in the case of, um, Myself, I just want whoever is going to legalize marijuana um, or it could be something, you know, something a little bit more in the middle, you know, like you know, whose foreign policy aligns with, you know, my country of birth. Are they are they pro or against Pakistan, um, for example, or pro against Israel? This is one that's salient in my life. Um, so I've got lots of, you know, my family members are single issue voters, whoever, whichever party or whichever candidate is more pro Israel than what they vote, who they vote for, even if. It's um, uh, that candidate might be uh, uh, anti many of their other, you know, cherished values. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know how to say somebody has made a wrong decision there. Like, arguably, your relatives just have a preference that, uh, you know, outweighs their other considerations. Like, how am I going to tell them that they're wrong? Right. Like, I, it just seems very difficult to have a normative standard. Um, and also, man, the future is hard to predict. Right. So I can be like, well, I like so and so's policies, but maybe if implemented, you know, there's something I'm overlooking that would make them disastrous. Right. There's like there's often unintended consequences. I don't know. I just I'm, I'm worried about being too confident about saying like, oh, this is obviously the right answer for you. This is like we can work out mathematically like how you should be voting. You are, you're not helping me here. OK, <laughs> I want to have a good reason to scream at my parents. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm sorry. I, I'll, I'll, I'll try and come up with something. <laughs> Maybe it could be non-political. Maybe you could scream about them, uh, you know, about your upbringing. Yes. Yeah. God damn it, mom. The hamburgers you made were just too round, not flat enough. Exactly. I'm damaged forever. For That's damaged. right. That's right. See what you did to me, mom. <laughs> okay. So um, let's move on to uh, kind of the next one. Now, um, Actually, I believe uh, when I first saw the the, the 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 suggestion by Childish Critic, the first kind of JDM effect that came to mind was the decoy effect, mm -hmm. which um, other than the name decoy effect, I, know, I have no idea what it actually is. So what is the decoy effect and how can this play out here? Right. Uh, so the decoy effect is the following. Suppose that you have uh, two options a and b and you just show people those two options you're like pick one and let's say for the sake of argument that they're um about equally split between a and b and then for another group you introduce a third option c which is comparable to b but strictly worse right so compared to c b looks really good now the choice share of b is going to go up right because people can make that local comparison between b and c compared to c b looks great you're like all right i'll take that um, so how might, how might that affect the field? Uh, you know, if you think of candidates as being like comparable, either based on, you know, identity characteristics or maybe based on policy positioning, if you have two that seem sort of similar and one that's clearly worse in that comparison, maybe that sort of boosts the attractiveness of, of the candidate who looks better in that comparison. 
So wait, going back to like an earlier question, doesn't that mean to some extent that the DNC's strategy of mixing the field, could that somehow actually um, lower their standing paradoxically? Um, because they are clearly worse than these other candidates. I mean, clearly worse. They're clearly less popular than these other candidates. Um, and therefore, it might boost you know, some of the more popular candidates in, in, in surprising ways to some extent. Yeah, potentially. I mean, it, the effect would sort of depend on you know, two candidates in per- particular being seen as like especially comparable to each other and then on one of them being clearly worse, right? So there's sort of some kind of specific conditions for that. Uh, the closest I can think of um, that, uh, you know, we can come in the, in the field is uh, Mayor Pete and Beto, who are, you know, they're both like younger white men um, they're both um, in their positioning, if not in their like actual like policy stances, but in a kind of like in tone, kind of more moderate and more consensus building. Right. But I think it's clear that uh, and sorry to show my bias here again. Mayor Pete is just better. Like he has a better story. He's smarter. He's more articulate. Beto is kind of a weird flake. Sorry to all the Beto fans. Right. So you might say like, okay, if Beto and Mayor Peter are on the same stage, probably bad for Beto O'Rourke. Right. He's going to suffer by by this comparison to somebody who like seems quite similar to him, but also superior on almost like really every dimension. Um, so Mayor Pete would like Beto to be, you know, in the same in the same debate. Yeah, you would probably want to keep Beto around, which is a little bit um, counterintuitive because you think of like uh, political analysts often talk about this idea of lanes and like who's occupying what lane and you don't typically want somebody in your lane. Um, and I, I think it's a like a delicate thing, right? If like Beto is too popular, then it obviously is a problem for Mayor Pete. But if Beto is limping along as he has been with like two, three percent support, right? I do think that he makes Mayor Pete look better. I see. Now, the only thing I know about Beto other than he, that, that he's from Texas is that he, and correct me if I'm wrong, Yoel, he stands up on counters in coffee in cafes he has, he has and been known to. Yeah, okay. that's right. He has a lot of youthful enthusiasm. I see. Okay. Well, I can see the appeal. He, you know, <laughs> maybe I'm, <laughs> right. I'm, a, I'm a two issue voter. Weed and standing, and standing up. He's, and he's doing both, dude. That's true. He's probably smoking weed while standing on those tables. <laughs> um, so, okay, now uh, maybe this is a bit more inflammatory and, 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 and maybe I shouldn't even say this and maybe we'll cut it out. Um, could this decoy effect hurt, uh, you know, uh, Kamala Harris uh, and Elizabeth Warren? Are they comparable in any way? I mean, other than being women, um, is there something, you know, because they, they both are polling with similar numbers. They're both, you know, strong candidates from their home states. Um, but uh, maybe Elizabeth Warren is, is, is stands out a bit more for, than Kamala Harris, but not much more. Um, or is that my just? Kind yeah, of- no, I, I I don't think that uh, the decoy effect really has a lot to say there because it's not clear like who's worse, right? And you you need a clear worse in the comparison for this to work. But um, I do think that another kind of related phenomenon might happen there. Um, so this actually doesn't have a catchy name, but it's it's a really cool phenomenon. So basically. Um, Suppose, again, you have A and B. They're about equally preferred, uh, but they differ on all sorts of things um, that you might want to trade off against each other. So it's sort of a difficult comparison. Say you're like 50% A, 50% B. Uh, Let's say you add a third option that seems very similar to B that's about equally good. 
Um, and now what happens is that people find the trade-off between B and C very hard to make, right? Because they're so similar, whereas A is pretty different from the other two. So what people are prone to do then is to choose A. They're like, oh, I can't decide between B and C who, se who seem really comparable to each other. I'm going to go with A, right? Um, and so that, that might come into play here, right? So if you're like, well, you know, I'd like to vote for a woman, but there's these two women and they've both staked out this fairly left positioning. Um, and so I can't really make up my mind between those two. Let's go with And they're both women of color, right? Uh, are you, you're now, you're just being fucking <laughs> a dick, aren't you? Aren't you? I, I, we, we're going to like leave this Native American thing behind. I'm not even going to dignify that. Right. Exactly. Um, anyway, so so then you might be you might be like, all right, well, that's too hard a decision to make. I'm going to go with the thing that seems completely different. Right. Which I, I think overall would help Biden because he's the person who is like the least immediately comparable to anybody else. Right. So there's plenty of like more like younger, um, more moderate white men. Um, there's a handful of women. Um, there's uh, a handful of like more left people. He's kind of the only moderate older white man, right? So he doesn't have that immediate local comparison and he's just sort of an attractive default option because of his standing in the polls or whatever. So if you get deadlocked being like, oh, you know, I like these two, but they're so close to each other, I can't really decide, then you might just go Biden by default. And Bernie wouldn't, wouldn't be helped by this at all because he's also, I mean, I agree, maybe uh, there are a bunch of other progressives, you know, uh, pretty left candidates, um, but he's pretty far left and old and white and yeah. um, so also kind of unique. He call, he, he's unashamedly calls himself a socialist. Maybe, maybe. And, and you know, he certainly like has a, a higher floor, I would say, than the other candidates. So like he, more than any of the other candidates, has diehard supporters. But at the same time, he is kind of competing with Warren in a way. So they are comparable in terms of policy, right? And so if you're like, well, you know, I like uh, they're they're both yeah more or less uh, the same amount of left. And if you're like, well, I like Warren's like really well worked out policy vision, but I admire Bernie's passion, and I can't really like decide between those two. Well, maybe I'm going to say like, oh, that's too difficult. I'm going to go with the electability criterion. And then it's okay. Biden, right? Okay, that's that, that, that's fair. I mean, this is all kind of post hockey. Yeah, of course. Yeah. All this is. Yeah, I mean, all, all the yeah. talking heads. Yeah, they don't know what they're talking we about. We don't know <laughs> shit, listeners. Just keep that in mind. Yes. Um. So, well, I am uh, uh, out of beer. I know we're not supposed to have a break, but I want another one. So, um, uh, can I have one? Go, go, go in the fridge. Grab the dick. Right. Open up the beer. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, Mickey, are you drunk yet? Uh, not quite yet. Uh, it's remarkable. The champagne of beer, you know, it doesn't hit you like champagne. Yeah. Um, you know, it's got the same color, the same kind of bubbly, you know, features, but there's nothing about champagne. Like after a glass or two, you're like feeling, you feel it. Yeah. Yeah. You're saying you're not feeling this. Uh, hmm. I feel I'm increasing in lucidity, lucidity as we go oh, on. Oh, man. You're going in the wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is this on your drinking too much, right? Your tolerance. Yeah, uh, maybe. Yeah. Uh, or maybe just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. A little, <laughs> a little. All right, so um, the last phenomenon that I wanted uh, to talk about, and this for once is one that doesn't 
uh, help Biden um, is called the uh, compromise effect. And the idea here is that if you add options like to one end of a choice set, it makes the previous more extreme options look more reasonable. So, for example, uh, you'll have noticed that restaurants sometimes have like a single very expensive bottle of wine on the menu. Right. Why do they do that? Um, it's because it makes the hundred dollar bottle of wine look more reasonable. Right. When the hundred dollar bottle of wine is the top option, you're like, oh, I never. But compared to a five hundred dollar bottle, it's like, oh, well, maybe. Yeah. I, do you remember how expensive that bottle of wine was that I bought once and got in trouble for? Were you there? Uh, I heard about it. Yeah, it's been yes, and, uh, you know, uh, UL uh, <laughs> took one of our job candidates out to dinner. And uh, I think one of your first times, right? Kind of like you're yeah. in charge of that. Yeah. Uh, I was in charge. Card. Yeah. And went for some crazy bottle. And it wasn't crazy. It was a hundred bucks. That's not crazy. I got to show the candidate a good time. I think she ended up coming. So it, the system worked. It did work. And did you have to pay for it out of your own pocket? No. They just yelled at me. <laughs> <laughs> That's worth it. I get yelled at all the time. Yeah, totally. Totally worth it. It was really good. <laughs> it turns out expensive wine is really tasty. Um, anyway, so uh, the point is, um, let's say you add people who are like kind of, you know, far left would have been considered like uh, 10 years ago to be like kind of out way, way out of the mainstream. So Sanders, who self-describes as a democratic socialist, now he's the new like far left end. Maybe that makes somebody like Warren, by comparison, look more reasonable, right? Her proposals, which are like fairly progressive, now look kind of more mainstream because you have this like very left, at least perceived to be very left option to Sanders. Oh, that's interesting. So um, we can, you know, consider, you know, he kind of moves the window of, of acceptability mm-hmm. to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He makes what's, what would previously be an outrageous candidate be, oh, pretty normal. Right, right. So this has been called the Overton window. I don't know where that comes from, but the idea that like, yeah, somebody stays at this really extreme position and then, you know, it kind of shifts where the center is perceived to be. And if anything, I think that would, that would hurt a more moderate candidate such as Biden, right? Because he might be seen as like no longer in the middle, but actually kind of more towards the conservative end in a way that might hurt him. Right. Um, so, okay. So uh, it seems like many of the biases that you've discussed are really uh, favoring Biden. Uh, maybe this last one favor- favoring Warren. Um, I guess uh, maybe the decoy effect uh, helps Mayor Pete in, in, in one example, maybe helps Warren as well. Potentially that might be a, a bit, a bit of a stretch. Um, so what I'm hearing is, uh, you know, at least again, with our crystal ball, our, our JDM crystal ball that, you know, Biden seems to be really uh, the person to beat here. Even money, I would take Biden versus the rest of the field. Uh, So there's your risky prediction when he totally crashes and burns. I mean, yeah, this all with a huge grain of salt of there's been no debates, you know, candidates like some candidates have done like really limited campaigning so far. Biden in particular has taken a very like, I would say, risk averse approach overall. Right. His campaign has. And you don't think at all the uh, the gripes of the progressives will, you know, hurt him at all. I think it's been demonstrated how little that stuff matters. What if they just don't go to the polls? I mean, they're, they're a percentage of Democratic voters. Maybe not a large percentage, but they're not like nothing. They loathe Trump. They will vote for anybody to get Trump out of office. Yeah, that's, that, 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 that is fair. Yeah. So, all right, you've heard it here. Yoel and Barr uh, promising that uh, Joe Biden will win in 2020. That's right. Uh, if he doesn't, I will eat a bug on the podcast. <laughs> a bug? A bug. 
that's it? That's all you're going to give our listeners? Yeah, sorry, guys. All right. Actually, like, you know, there's like toasted crickets. They're they're actually like pretty good. You know, I have eaten uh, uh, fried, deep fried crickets, uh-huh. uh, which was disgusting. Not because the cricket tasted disgusting. It was more of the oil in which I cooked it. It's <laughs> really, it was, it's very unhealthy. Yeah, it was you rancid. Know, right. Um, and then I also ate a uh, giant ant in Colombia, um, which was... Uh, Kind of gross, too. <laughs> I, I would be intrigued to eat a giant ant. <laughs> yes, a really giant abdomen. So, okay. So, okay. Well, uh, if we're still around, uh, I will hold you to uh, to eating an insect. I will. I'll, I'll happily. I'll, let's just say I'll, I'll just eat an insect regardless. Like, whatever the outcome is, I'll just eat an insect. You heard it here first. All right. <laughs> the best if it's, uh, you know, marinated in some sort of liqueur. Oh, like in chocolate? Like, <laughs> yeah, chocolate. <inside. laughs> I've, I've heard of this. I thought this is a real thing. Yeah. Chocolate-covered ants? Yeah, yeah, no, they make them. Listeners, if you want to send us something, I bet you that's easier to send across borders than, uh, you know, boozes. Send us edible insects. Yes, please. Yoel will eat them. I will eat and review them on the show. Oh, my God. That's an amazing uh, uh, new development that just happened just now. It's going to be a segment. <laughs> 